Welcome everybody to episode 161 of the Metabolist 2 podcast, featuring the award-winning Ben Haywood. And uh, <laughs> I haven't won any awards. I'm David. No, you haven't won any awards. Yeah. No, you have. Yeah, number one in the world, baby. You're, you're hot after number one yeah. Quiz of yeah. Rassilon triumph, <laughs> the Ford Zoomsday. Ford Zoomsday. Um, we are, we're not the three who rule, we're the four who rule. Yeah. <laughs> Did, did, did we talk about this on the last podcast? No, we did This, was, we this didn't. happened the day after we recorded it last did time. It happened the so, day after, didn't it? Yeah. Re, re, recap, recap. Oh, goodness. Oh, we're hijacking the podcast subject now. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'd, uh, it, was, it was a close. It's always close on the mm-hmm. game of Rassilon because um, basically everyone knows a lot about Doctor Who. Um, but we we had some real Stone Cold experts on our team. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh Jerkovic, who knows his music forwards and backwards, because yeah. that was one of the that was one of the questions. Uh, working out what music is by listening to it backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, and uh, my good friend Lena, who um, is a the world expert on the mind robber, um, <laughs> and luckily one of the one of the rounds was on the mind robber. Well, that was fortunate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, and Brian, who's also good at everything too. He's he was our team captain. He's good at manipulating the uh, spreadsheets, and he also knows a lot about music as well. Interesting. Okay, so it was a catapulted on on uh, on on the knowledge of music. Was it heavy on the music? No, it wasn't. It wasn't too heavy on music. Um, there was a was there a roundabout mm-hmm. music in the charts? No, there wasn't a roundabout music in the charts. It was basically you. We just had to. Um, listen to the um we had to listen to piece of music backwards and then work out work out what they are oh, okay yeah yeah um and then we had to answer questions on um god i answer questions on them i can't remember what they are now um <laughs> hang on. i've done i've done like five of these quizzes now it's all mm-hmm, they're all mm-hmm. kind of um blurring blurring to one let me look at my little archive here whoops wait a second um Quiz of Rassilon. Oh, yes, we had to answer questions on Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. That was pretty easy. We mm-hmm. did have to answer questions on the TV movie. That was hard. But luckily, Brian took one for the team and watched all of the TV movie and therefore was able to step into the breach and um, ask, answer those questions. Um, did he dress for the occasion? Um, uh, he suffered for the occasion. I don't think, I don't think <laughs> any any of our team really enjoyed that movie that much. Okay. Uh, then um, Lena, the wonderful Lena Barkin, um, just steamed through the mind robber round. Um, she's mm-hmm. lit, literally written the written her thesis on um, on Jamie. Mm-hmm. There was an excellent Ian Barber round, which required us to have strong Ian and Barber knowledge, which I did. Uh-huh. And then there was a Who I round, so that was based on QI, the cult British TV show, where the answer to the question is not the answer that you're expecting. Mm. So I'll give you I'll, I'll give you an example. When was Doctor Who first broadcast on BBC One in the UK? Okay, if it's not the answer that I was expecting, so it's not. No, I'm, you've lost me. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to ask. I'm not familiar with this quiz. Ah, well, you see, so so the 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 point of that question is that when Doctor Who was first broadcast in 1963, BBC One didn't exist. Oh, okay. It oh, was BBC Television. Oh, so um, it was only when BBC Two came along that absolutely. And when so did BBC you, Two come along? Nineteen sixty-four, April nineteen sixty-four. I so, see. Yeah, you see. So and you did you know s- this? Oh yeah, of course we oh. did. Yeah, with a with a with a winning team. Oh, um, so I mean, anyway, doff my hat and impressedness. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, you know, uh, yeah. So there was, there was a lot of points in it, and eventually there was a tiebreaker. Okay. Because um, we were tied first with another team. Yes. Um, and so we did a tiebreaker, uh, which was basically Jess reciting the uh, goodbye to Susan speech from the end of Dalek Invasion of Earth. Right. And he did it so passionately and so wonderfully with his with his hands on his lapels, even though he's wearing a T-shirt, that we came in first. Ah, excellent. Yeah. So there you go. We are the best. we are the champions, my friends. <laughs> so now you're now you have to defend. Are you? Doing the quiz next weekend? Uh, there is a quiz next week, and mm-hmm. the questions are just uh, with the rounds have just been revealed. Pip is back. Uh, Pip is back. Uh, Blink. We've got to answer questions on Blink. Mm-hmm. Answer questions on the Dalek Master Plan. Challenging. 
we've got to answer question, we've, the question. There's another round called Zoe Discovers Robots, um, which is actually hosted by Zoe Harriet herself. So that'll be exciting. <laughs> um, uh, Scarf Ace, Who Done It, and Expect the Unexpected. I think Zoe is played by Andy Footer, if I'm not mistaken. No, it's actually Zoe. Oh, okay. It's real Zoe, and it's not. It's not the actor playing Zoe. It's actually real Zoe from the future. Ah. Uh, uh. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, much, much prettier than, than a computer. Mm-hmm. Gav Rymill is back, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, he's, 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 he's mean. I'm expecting him to do the expect from unexpected round. That sounds like Gav's thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, it's all very exciting. I've seen the graphic. They have a little bit of the Ronnie there, Mandrels, Yeti. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, I mean, I'm not sure the graphic was created specifically for the quiz of Rassilon, but it's certainly the, that quizzical the quizzical look of the rani mm-hmm. and also the quizzical look of david tennant <laughs> and also the quizzical look of patrick Troughton implies that it's quiz it's quiz time mm-hmm. yeah well i wish you for the best brian lena jess and yourself all knock it out of the park i guess is, is there an equivalent british phrase for knock it out of the park um, Do you knock it out of the park in cricket? Uh, no, um, you'll you'll you could you could uh, um, hit it for six. What? Hit it for six. Hit it for six. Hit it for six. That's equivalent of, of knock it out of the park. All right. When you uh, hit a cricket ball with your cricket bat mm-hmm. out of the boundary without it touching the ground, so literally out of the boundary, mm-hmm. um, you get autom- auto- automatic. You get six runs. Excellent. Do you, do you what, what, what do you get if you knock if you knock the baseball out of the park? Depends how many runners are on base. If you're the first man at bat and you hit it out, you get one run. If there's bases loaded, that's a grand slam, and then you would get four runs. Oh, is that the is that the origin of the phrase grand slam? Yeah, oh, grand okay. slam is you have a runner on first, second, and third. You hit a home run, and so you score four. Oh, okay, all right. That is the most scoring you can do with a single stroke of the bat in baseball. Well, it's slightly similar, but <laughs> generally baseball doesn't have the huge inflated scores that cricket does. No. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, if you hit it out of the boundary, but mm-hmm. it rolls along the ground, then you get four runs. Okay. Now these runs are where you're the cricketers, the the batsman, and then there's another runner on uh, opposite the batsman, right? And they have to kind of well, run they're past both it. they're both batsmen because okay. at, at the end of each over, the batsman the bowler switches ends. Hmm. So, so you have the you have the stumps, right? Yep. You have the crease, and the stumps um, have the wickets on them. And there's two of those, yep. right? So at the end of the at the end of the um, forget my my cricket terminology at the end of the pitch, mm-hmm. um, and both of those stumps have a batsman yep. whose job is to protect the wicket. Okay, mm-hmm. um, but there's only one bowler, right? So the bowler then bowls six balls mm-hmm. at one of the batsmen. Mm-hmm. And then the batsman switch ends, mm-hmm. so then the bowler is then bowling balls to the other batsman. I see. So basically, if you're the batsman, you 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 only you only you only have to deal with six balls at a time. Right. And do yeah. they come in rapid succession, or? Well, no. I mean, they bowl one ball. You you hit it or don't hit it, mm-hmm. depending on your uh, willingness to engage with the ball. And then uh, and then the next one mm-hmm. comes basically. And if the um, but the but the run is when you is when you is when you hit the ball away. And the fielders try and grab it, and that's when you run backwards and forwards between the two wickets, and that's a run. So one trip between one wicket to another wicket is is one run. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it's a good game. And, I like cricket. And there's one other question I have before we move on, okay. since this is we are, this is <laughs> not the Black the actual, Orchid podcast. To the actual subject of the <laughs> one, one more question about cricket is: What is when you're not out? Well, that's when you're in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so okay so so if so if the you, bowl don't so you catch it's catch catch a ball right a so you're batted okay, ball so and you're not out all right so okay. okay so the job of the batsman is to protect the wicket yes okay um now the batsman can be caught out in two ways the first of which if he and it's always it always is a he um is the first if he if he uh neglect if he doesn't protect the wicket mm-hmm. and the ball hits the wicket and dislodges the bales which are on the top of the wicket then he's out basically ah okay um the second way you can get out is that if if, if some if you if you then if you hit the ball mm-hmm. and it goes into the air because it usually does and then one of the fielders catches it then you are then you are out mm-hmm. much also. like baseball okay 
Yes, exactly. At the at the either end of the of the of the crease, you have a wicketkeeper. Now, the wicketkeeper's job is to kind of determine whether you're out or in, um, depending on you know uh, where the ball is hit, um, et cetera, et cetera, who catches it. Right. So then the wicketkeeper goes like, "He's out." Mm. Um, I mean, the 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 you know the bowler will go with the traditional kind of phrase. You go, "How's that?" Which is, "How's that?" And then, then the wicket keeper will then raise a finger uh, or not raise a finger, depending on whether they're out, whether they're out or in. Yeah. And if they're out, then they have to leave the crease, mm-hmm. and they're replaced by another batsman from the pavilion. And I think there are eleven. Yeah, there are eleven bat. There are eleven batsmen. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's two batsmen out on the crease at any any one time. Right. Okay. Excellent. And that's cricket. I think that's cricket. I have to. I'm, 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 my memory of cricket is getting hazy, actually. Yeah. Um, there's not a but, lot of. Um, cr- well, actually, in my area of uh, Oregon, there is quite a bit of cricket, or there was quite a bit of cricket with uh, uh, Indian software developers who have come yeah. over and they have formed their own leagues. So it's very interesting that you would have. A hybrid of Indian slash uh, local uh, names for cricket teams in our cricket leagues around here. Yeah, and there's cricket in Minneapolis as well. There's a lot of there's a kind of British Guyanese community in Minneapolis that mm. they play a lot of cricket. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it might. I haven't found any cricket in Seattle yet, but yeah. okay. so uh, that's cricket. All right, so cricket. That's the sporting news. Uh... <laughs> Now on That's... to uh, drama and entertainment. No. <laughs> now on to the yeah, you've had the sports sports reports. So last week we did an overview of season twelve, but uh, when I went to edit it, we didn't talk much about Tom, which is kind of the catalyst for talking about season twelve at all. So I'm thinking maybe we should focus in, maybe spend twenty thirty minutes just looking in at uh, Tom and how he grew or how he was in that first season before he knew he was a big star as Doctor Who. Yeah. Because I remember you saying that you took to Tom like a duck to water. Right. Uh, you didn't have much reluctance. And the Doctor Who, they did try to break Doctor Who into the American scene with Pertwee, but he never quite clicked. But when Lionheart Television packaged up Seasons 12 through 17 packaged them up for the American audience in 1980 for public television. It was a hit. It, uh, it had, I remember an article in Time magazine how this crazy new British show was just taking, uh, capturing, it was teenagers at the time, which I was a pre-tween. Right, right. So there's something about Tom Baker's portrayal that was right for even the American audience. And I think this is, since the 60s, the first kind of growth in the audience. Yeah, and I, 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 I suppose you're probably the one to answer this. I mean, you know, what, why do you think Tom was so attractive to Americans? Hmm. Because, a... I mean, he doesn't have any of the kind of superficial David Niven, um, you know, what Americans think all British people are like mm-hmm. kind of tone to him, which I guess is what, you know, John Pertwee had, you know. Right. Uh, uh, his, uh, you know, the Avengers or something like that, you know. Right. He's not very british He's not like stereotypical British, maybe. Tom's more of a vagabond. You know, I would put Tom more in the. Um, I'm thinking about the Avengers, um, but then also thinking about the Prisoner, which was a big hit in the United States. Was it okay? Uh, I think it was. I think I'm. I don't know about it. It's an original run. It. I of course that was in the late '60s. I didn't find out about the Prisoner until it was kind of hmm. piggyback slotted in after Doctor Who as a how can we keep the Doctor Who fans still watching. So they did The yeah. Prisoner and Danger Man and Monty Python, that type of stuff. Yeah, so I mean, I'd put, I'd put Tom in the same category as Patrick McGowan hmm. in, the, in Danger Man and in, as, and in The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're both from Liverpool. I know Tom's definitely Liverpool, and I know that McGowan has, uh, you know, kind of Irish Liverpudlian background. Um, so they're both kind of slightly skewed British people. Um, you know, they're not from the mm-hmm. home counties. Um, and mm. I'd also put him in the same category as Monty Python as well. You know, there is a kind of daffy eccentricity to it, to mm-hmm. his performance. And again, you similarly... You know, some of the things that irritate me about American fandom, especially when it applies to Tom, is that 
a lot of American fans still kind of grab on to that Python-esque element, you know, the jelly babies and the right. scarf um, and the hair, you know, which is actually, um, I think Tom Baker has a far more, has a far greater range than a kind of Eric Idle set of twitches, um, mm-hmm. which is, again, I think what a lot of American fans, and I think, you know, this kind of general, this kind of general public, what people think about Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, in that way, he was someone who was British, who was different in a, in a more, he, I mean, he was British in a more kind of, in a more sort of acceptable to Americans kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and especially at that first season 12, you pair him up with a, a, a classically British man when Harry Sullivan, naval officer, and then uh, Sarah uh, Liz Sladen, who is I think has a very British beauty about her. She's very a very English-looking face, and Slayton and Baker are both Liverpudlians. Exactly, yeah. Which again, I mean, just to just to editorialize that out a second. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. Liverpool in the sixties uh, with the Beatles was you know the coolest place on the planet. So mm-hmm. it's kind mm-hmm. of interesting mm-hmm. that you know that kind of yeah. coolness ex- extends to those two lead actors. You know, only kind of half a half a decade or so later. Yeah, McGuhan is interesting because he was born in Queens and his family then moved to Ireland and, and he spent time in uh, uh, County uh, Carrigallon, I think. Okay. And uh, Sheffield. Oh, so he, right. Okay. <laughs> so he, I think he was more of a natural fit for the Americans because right. he has that kind of mid Atlantic Irish American English bit to him and he's he's and it's almost like the Sean Connery type where you know Connery was Scottish right and so he's in both of them are outsiders McGuhan and Connery are outsiders looking in and listening to Tom being interviewed he's an outsider looking in too he never really fit in I think no I mean I think he's a rebel you know and I and I think again like McGuhan Mm -hmm. um you know he has that kind of you know rebellious streak to him and you know i think americans like people who seem to be rebellious because you know <laughs> oh we're a free country we threw off the shackles mm-hmm. of uh, the the king and etc uh, etc et you know i mean obviously you know that's as true as you think it is which it isn't right however you know that's part of the kind of self-image of the united states is that you know mm-hmm. we're a free a free country of rebels mm-hmm. you know who rebel the, for liberty but... and that's and i think you know maybe that's what people saw in tom but it's also resonated very well with the UK audience too. So I mean, he grew in popularity in that first first season, uh, season twelve. And by the time season thirteen came along, he knew he was a big star, and you could see, I think, a difference and a change in his performance. And it really kicked in when Liz left the show in fourteen, season fourteen. Right, right. And I think Sladen really, maybe not muted, tempered, tempered, kind of regulated his uh, uh, overbearingness, his um, his ability to capture or project and overwhelm his guest cast. But with Liz there, she was the old hand, and I think she kept him grounded. And then once she left, we had the huge flare-up of uh uh, Louis Jimson, and I don't think he ever really recovered from losing Liz. Almost no, no, and I think you know, famously, you've got you know the one episode where he, the one story where he doesn't have a companion, mm-hmm. um, and then you know the the dislike that he took apparently to um, to poor old uh, Louise Jameson, um, and then not actually sure. I mean, the, well, the story with Mary Tam is that she wanted to be in movies and felt that being a Doctor Who companion was a little bit restricting. Um, he then married the next, the next, um, mm-hmm. uh, the next Romana, which was a bad idea, and then he's basically <laughs> done after that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I don't think he recovered. And the show has these different flavors. And the, this first, uh, I'd go from Robot through Zygons, which were all filmed relatively before before he knew what effect he was having on the populace. He's more of an actor, I think, being Doctor Who in season 12 and he starts becoming tom being the doctor as it goes on and none of this is ground shaking earth shattering observation it's i think uh probably pretty widely thought but 
he becomes overbearing in some ways and the show uh doesn't doesn't respond a lot to it especially when you want to switch him over from like someone who's very seriously dramatic like like uh uh, the Rasputin type or the uh, Prince Kura type character that he was playing in the movies, which you see earlier and like even in season 13 with uh, dealing with Sutek, you have a subtle performance or with dealing with Scorby and Chase in 13 at the end Seeds of Doom or mm. even playing off Philip Maddock. When he had good actors to work against, I think it, it was much better when it was a serious drama but then when we go into comedy i think he just becomes tom unbound and sometimes the comedy works and other times looking back at it there's no there's none of that constraint yeah and comedy is very difficult um especially in a scientific and so in a science fiction Mm -hmm. context i think we had this conversation when we were talking about hitchhikers uh you know you've got to play it straight right otherwise if you start laughing at the the show that you're in mm-hmm. rather than be the funny thing in the show, then, uh, you know, I think that's the that's the kind of recipe for disaster, really. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, where I have difficulties with Tom's comedic activities within Doctor Who is he's laughing at the show. And if, he, if the star is laughing at the show, then we're laughing at the show. And if we're laughing at the show, then it's finished because it is an inherently ridiculous show to start with. <laughs> Yeah, well, kind of going from a hitchhiker's perspective, uh, maybe Tom starts out as Arthur Dent, moves more into the uh, Ford Prefect, and then winds up as uh, Zaphod towards the end, where it's just uh, all a big laugh. It's all a big joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Except at the very, you know, the very his very final season, where he's obviously um, Marvin. Really. <laughs> really pretty depressed mm-hmm. um, and not well um, no. which is one of the very sad things about that final season you know his mm-hmm. hair is all flattened mm-hmm. and his face is all seems a lot more kind of lined and wrinkled and he doesn't really appear to be enjoying spending time with his companions mm-hmm. I find that final season does find you know from from Leisure Hive onwards mm-hmm. um, I, I find it kind of depressing to be mm-hmm. honest and not in a good way not in a kind of like cool way um like pyramids of mars kind of serious depressing just kind of wow no one looks like they're really enjoying themselves right Mm -hmm. kind of way the uh word that people associate with season 18 a lot of times is funerary yeah it's a very somber it's you you have the increasingly comedic graham williams douglas adams era the silly era and then you change with jnt coming on board as producer you change the the whole tone the look and even the sound so you get rid of the orchestral ensemble arrangements of Dudley Simpson and you go to the BBC Radiophonic Workshop uh, which is more heavily synths and stuff and it, it the the tone and the look just all changes and with Tom not feeling well and the deteriorating relationship with his wife who was the companion it gets kind of bleak yeah, it does. It does, and as I said, not bleak in a not bleak in an interesting way. Just you know, it's yeah. kind of a just obviously that the show is is not a happy show anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, because the lead star, the lead star, isn't happy. He's not a happy person, right? You know, I mean, I think by all accounts, you know, he. I mean, I think he's always drunk a lot, but I mean, I think he was drinking a lot at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Baker's ever. Yeah, he's not an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think at various points in his life, you know, boozing was very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and staying up late was very, very important. And, you know, being part of that particular kind of London Soho, mm-hmm. staying up late and drinking scene was very important to him. Um, and I think that after a while, that kind of takes its toll. Do you know if he was part of the colony room scene or whatever uh, at the beginning of his career? Um, or was this I something d- that I... he came into? I don't know. I mean, it's not really covered in his, um, in the Who is Tom Baker autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I don't, I have not, actually, I've not read any uh, interviews with him that says uh, when he first started going to the Colony Club and hanging out with, you know, Jeffrey Barnard and Francis Bacon and all those people. I don't know when it started. I mean, I think, you know, he's always been a bohemian of some kind. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess, you know, you naturally gravitate if you're going out for a drink in central London you know, after 
doing some acting, then you'd probably, if you were a certain kind of person, you'd probably kind of end up there anyway. They wouldn't let you in unless, again, you were a certain kind of person. I mean, not you know, you or, you or I couldn't have walked into the Colony Club and ordered a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd have kicked us out, you know, for being normies. So I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've not really read anything about that. Have you ever seen the interview? Uh, it was a Mavis Nicholson interview of Tom Baker, which is almost right after he uh, leaves Doctor Who. It was in December of '81. Uh, I can't remember, but it was um, it was an interesting interview. Um, I think I probably have seen it. Which, I mean, I know. I mean, I kind of sort of avoid those kind of completely um, the kind of depressing interviews with Tom Baker because I find them too depressing, sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. is is it that one? I don't know if it's uh, depressing, but I think you can see that he's really kind of spent by his time in Doctor Who. So. Yeah, I mean, and it's, I mean, obviously, it's also it's a busy show. You know, it's it's very, you know, you're pretty much you're in every scene. Your character really doesn't change a huge amount. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a huge amount of acting to do. It's very technical. You have to work with the BBC, who are difficult to work with because it's very hierarchical and all run by you know Oxbridge graduates who are basically fools um so you know yeah i mean i'm 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 surprised he lasted, and i think the only reason he lasted as long as he did on the show is because of his essential insecurity um and not believing in himself that he could ever get another job which i think you know thinking back to this you know your original question about the mavis nicholson uh, interview i think that's that's the angst you see there is i don't think i can ever get another job and he did struggle i think for for work he never really did I mean, you look at uh, his career, and I mean, he played Holmes. That was more of a one-off drama. He had other uh, bit parts as villains in American drama, uh, televised drama, but it didn't really. I think he went mostly back to the stage. I'm not sure if he recaptured anything until like Williams and uh, uh, Nardle actor. Um, now you've said Nardle. I can't remember his name. Um... Yeah, David Williams and the uh, the bald one. Um, so it's a couple of things about that. Um, I mean, I saw him play the eponymous inspector in An Inspector Calls in, I think, probably 1986 mm-hmm. on the stage in London. Um, I dragged my then girlfriend along <laughs> by promising her it'd be J.B. Priestley, which she would have liked because um, she was a lefty. Uh-huh. But I wanted to go and see it because of Tom Baker. He did voiceover work for a very influential comedy radio comedy show called Lionel Nimrod's Inexplicable World which was the kind of the first show that uh, Richard Herring and uh, Stuart Lee did mm-hmm. for the radio and Lee and Herring uh, are kind of you know ironic Doctor Who fans so they invited Tom because obviously he didn't really have any work so that's that's what I think then led him on to do the little the little Britain work uh-huh. with um, uh, Lucas yeah. Matt Lucas and Matt Lucas David Matt Lucas yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah and he was in Monarch of the Glen I think in the I think that was in the nineties towards was, the end of yeah yeah as an eccentric you know lad of some kind mm-hmm. um, but yeah no you know he was a little bit lost certainly in the eighties mm-hmm. and you had yeah. you had mentioned that you went to a book signing and there wasn't a huge throng of people like there would be today i think for his book signing no there wasn't i went to a signing in waterstones in um victoria street and uh, yeah it was just kind of me and tom basically Mm -hmm. um and he signed you know who is the doctor and we chatted very very briefly though uh i didn't really know what to say to him to be honest i I would know i'd I'd, I'd know i'd know better now but um yeah it it was a little bit sad really yeah and that's always been he always not so much now. I I do get listening to interviews that he does. Well, it depends. Like the the interview with Matthew Sweet, I do get kind of like, oh God, I'm talking about this again. But the interviews that he's done with uh, Nick Briggs for Big Finish, he seems a lot more joyful and happy. So I don't know if it's just uh, if you catch him in the right mood or whatever. But he he does seem most of the time pretty content anymore it's hard to say he's always in it he's he seems like he's usually always acting at some point and it's hard to hard to know where he really is right now yeah yeah i mean he's definitely an actor and i think like a lot of like a certain kind of actor it's really impossible to tell Mm -hmm. when he's acting when he isn't Mm -hmm. and i think it's probably at some point during your life you're that kind of person you also forget when you're acting when you're not 
and it may be the case with Tom, he doesn't actually know, you know, when he's acting. Mm -hmm. However, looking at him recently, he does seem to be very much older, yes. even older than, you know, a couple of years ago, which is sad. But on the flip side of that, you know, he does appear to be very happy. Right. And I'd much rather he was um, old looking and happy than young looking and miserable. So. Yep, and he's still working, and it's I think good for him. Yeah, I think I think Big Finish just you know having, in a sort of silly way, kind of resisted it for a decade or so. I think you know he's realized that actually this is something that he loves doing, yeah. and I think it's good for mm -hmm. him. Yeah, not bad for a young man of eighty six. Eighty six, yeah. exactly. Yeah, he's getting up mm -hmm. there, getting up there. So I think next time we'll uh... we promise <laughs> to do season thirteen. Uh, and. Uh pick it up from there in a week yeah we will sounds good okay. all right well thank you for listening to episode 161 of the metabulous 2 podcast i have been chatting about tom baker with ben and i've been chatting about tom baker with david and until next week goodbye goodbye Churchill seems to be in the news. Oh, goodness. Wow, this is the not <laughs> not the advertised subject podcast. No, it isn't. Uh, Churchill, um, uh, your question being, is, is Churchill a suitable quasi-companion for the Doctor? Is that is that your question? Or... With Ian McNeese, played by Ian McNeese? As played by Ian McNeese, yeah. In, um, in uh, Victory of the Daleks, 
And then also, I think he's been in a whole series of big finishes as well. Yeah, I wouldn't see a lot of running through corridors with Churchill. As no, the... no, no. Well, we can skip on this. Well, yeah, I mean, Churchill, you know, um, I mean, I don't think Churchill liked black people, mm-hmm. which I suppose of the time and of his class was entirely unsurprising. Um, I think he was also an imperialist. So the Second World War was a war to preserve the British Empire right. more than anything else. Well, from Churchill's point yes. of view, obviously the Second World War was fought for a whole bunch of other reasons, but from Churchill's perspective, it was to it was to preserve the empire. <laughs> Ironically, he burnt through the empire to preserve it. Then, well, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing about Churchill is that in the election they had in 1945, he was defeated and the Conservative Party was slung out. So mm-hmm. it's not as if all the soldiers who were coming home from the war and voting were going like, "Yay, Churchill." He's right. awesome. We're going to keep him as the prime minister. No, they got rid of him as the soon as soon as they could. Soon as they could. <laughs> um, there's the Bengal famine, which he was involved in, um, where I think something like eight million people starved to death in India um, because grain supplies was diverted from India to uh, the UK. Uh, so you know, you know, these are. Uh, there are more egregious statues in the United Kingdom that could mm-hmm. be taken down than Churchill, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yes. But still, he's not the... I mean, Americans always have a soft spot for, for Churchill because he was half American. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not... He's he, You know, he, he, he wasn't the greatest person, basically. Mm-hmm. Though, I mean, weirdly, he did also suffer from racism. I think there's a, um, a quote from Lord Halifax calling Churchill a half-breed. Because <laughs> he's half American. Because he was half American. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He wasn't British. Mm-hmm. Um... When I say suffer, um, I don't think he suffered that much. No, but anyway, it. you know, mm-hmm. um, there was a snobbery, a reverse snobbery towards Churchill because um, said his mother was a, an Astor, I think. Mm. So you know, colonial. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Churchill. Yeah, I, I mean, I said he's he's a little bit of a dodgy character to have as a friend of the Doctor's. To be honest, I mean, the Doctor would be, my opinion, would be more circumspect when choosing a friend than go straight to Winston Churchill. Yeah, but this kind of ties into, I think, the Pertwee era of having kind of dodgy Tory friends. But did did did, did the Third Doctor have dodgy Tory friends? I mean, mm. I think he's he was. I no, mean, obviously, it was Mao that he had a friend it was friend. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he, I mean, he had a club. Right. He went to a club, mm. and that's that's a vaguely Tory thing. But you know, he was very um, dismissive of the various civil servants he came up against. Who I suppose, but in that, some those, ways... And, but that would have been uh, a Labour government at the time. Yeah, but civil servants are not political. Uh, yes. Uh, that's that's the big difference between the American system and the British system, is that you have the civil service, i.e. the people who actually do all the work, right. are employees of the government. They're not political appointees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the civil service kind of famously kind of leans Tory. Right. And certainly in the 1970s, you know, was actively... Not actively, yes. I think probably actively working to foil most of the most of the government's plans. <laughs> sort of like Yes Minister. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, Yes, Yes Minister is an amazing TV show, but it's also you know a quasi documentary. It's mm-hmm. that's kind of what it's like. Do you think it's still that way? Um, I think uh, it's inter- interesting. Mm. Yes, and I think actually in some ways right now it's a good thing because I think. The civil servants, the civil service are kind of locking locking horns with the government because right. the British government is hell bent on destroying the country, um, and the civil servant are professionals whose job is to keep the country going, right. um, and they realise that Brexit and the current COVID uh, precautions are, you know, uh, both killing people and destroying the economy. Mm-hmm. But you know that's what the government wants because that's who we all voted for. So. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, yes. interestingly enough, uh, not sure how to wrangle this back into. Uh, ah! <laughs> I was just saying that it's interesting enough that the Black Lives Matter protests have uh, ballooned out from Minneapolis, and they're still ongoing. Uh, but they're uh, they've become international. They've they the 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 protest in London and Paris and elsewhere, New Zealand all across the U.S. are uh, stemming from the murder in Minneapolis. So it's a pent-up, pent-up 
situation. Well, again, I mean, I think I think in Britain, I mean, the, the racism is different in Britain than it is in the United States. And this, obviously this isn't a racism podcast. But, you know, there are statues that, I mean, not in the kind of completely kind of egregious manner there are in the southern of southern parts of the United States, or actually in the northern parts with, with, with Christopher Columbus. But, you know, the statue of Edward Colston, Col, Col, Edward Colston in um, Bristol, uh, you know, people have been trying to get that statue taken down for decades. Yes. Um, and it's always been foiled because, you know, the man was a, you know, an unrepentant, Slaver. Slave owner yep. mm-hmm. um, and slave trader. Well, not just a slave owner, but a trader. And the statue itself was only erected, I think, in the in 1895. So, you know, over 100 years after Colston died. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not exactly, you know, a piece of history. Right. Um, it's more, a lot more to do with late 19th century than it is to do with the late 18th century. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. But, you know, um, I think the slave trade in Britain is still a kind of an unrecognized... Um, uh, an unrecognized crime whereas in the United States it's kind of like you know in parts of the United States it's kind of a celebrated piece of wonderful history mm-hmm. you know the tweet that made me think on uh, Twitter was that the British invented the slave trade just to be able to ban it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah I mean we I mean you know we just put all the slaves somewhere else right so the only thing you noticed about the slave trade was that it was making everyone lots of money right um, you didn't actually get to see what how horrible it was and also you know you stuck all, all it was happening on islands so even if you were living in the Caribbean it was some way in some ways quite difficult to see exactly how, how horrible it was because you would have to go from island to island. Mm. But, you know, I mean, there's not the kind of grandiose statuary about celebrating of slave ownership as happens in the United States. No, that's prevalent. And much like the Colston statue in Bristol, yeah. uh, many, many of the statues were erected in Jim Crow era in the 19, early 1900s right. as a means of intimidation of the former slave black people absolutely and yeah. it was an extension of the kkk effectively it was a sign of white supremacists yeah. and i think english history is a little more complicated than that but you did have a civil english civil war too and i imagine there's statues of cromwell and others uh still there's a huge statue of cromwell outside the the houses of parliament mm-hmm. obviously because you know cromwell was a parliamentarian right. and actually the the other end of the mall mm-hmm. um there is a statue, a equestrian statue of Charles I. Of course, actually, it was on the mall outside the banqueting house that um, Charles I had his head chopped off. So, um, and Cromwell's, you know, Cromwell's a divisive figure because um, obviously, you know, he uh, fought against tyranny. I mean, that's what Charles I was trying to establish was a European style absolute monarchy right. in the UK. Right. Um, but then he was, you know, his cause was then taken over by. Uh, religious uh, fanaticism in the Puritans, of course, you know most of whom then fucked off to found America. Um, but if you if you then look at Ireland, where Cromwell, you know, massacred thousands of Irish people because they were all Catholics, right. and he was a Puritan, and um, or at least was backed by Puritans. Um, so the establishment of the plantation system in in Ireland. And the, uh, you know, the removal of land from Irish ownership and the massacring of Irish peasants, etc. Mm-hmm. Kind of set the stage for what then happened in the United States, especially mm-hmm. in the southern part of the United States. History is messy. It is. And it tends to repeat itself. And mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I don't hold with destroying statues. I think that's just silly. Um, but I think certainly you can take a statue down and put it somewhere else, um, i.e. Right. inside in a museum and use it as a teaching moment rather right. than and but, yeah, I guess if you have a giant you know, six story statue of Robert E. Lee then actually there's probably not a museum big enough to hold it. So I guess you probably are going to have to destroy that one. Um, I mean the, none of them are particularly good statues. I mean all, those, all that statuary in the United States was all kind of basically sort of low level French figurative sculpture mm. i mean the uh the statue of christopher columbus in saint paul that just got pulled down it was a you know basically it was a marketing ploy by an italian um sculpture studio in saint paul and that's the reason mm-hmm. why that statue's there and they've been trying to get rid of the columbus statue on the capital uh, minnesota state capitol mall for uh 
I remember it when I was working for the Historical Society really? back in the 90s. So yeah. that, that that has always been, at least in my living memory, uh, a sore thumb. And so you can understand why people get frustrated. If like, you know, you've got really cogent arguments why it shouldn't be there right. and nobody ever listens to you. At some point, you're just going to go say sod it and just pull it down. Yeah, you try to work within the rules for decades and you find the rules don't apply to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Christopher Columbus is in some way sacred, even though, you know, even at the time, people thought he was a dangerous psychopath. Um, right. So, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, that's one person the Doctor should not become friends with, is Christopher mm. Columbus. Thankfully, we haven't. Thankfully, there wasn't a 60s episode where the Doctor met Christopher Columbus. You know, if if Doctor Who is an American show, I, I wouldn't put it past in the 1960s that, oh, yes, we have to, it would have been, you know, we'd have the Mayflower, there'd be some story with the Mayflower, the right, story with right. Christopher Columbus. But there'd be the, the, the first Thanksgiving, the Doctor kind of working with the Indians to, like, find a turkey. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. You hmm. can imagine that being a Hartnell era. Yeah, luckily not. Luckily we escaped that one. Mm-hmm. Instead, we get uh, a f- focus on uh, <laughs> the French Revolution. The French Revolution. favorite area of history. Yeah, exactly. which is, you know, pretty uncontentious there, I don't think. No. Um, the Doctor really took any sides and, during... You know, just like, it's it's the problem that we have, and it's, well, problem in air quotes, it's, it's the difficulty or the challenge that we have interpreting what was contemporary Doctor Who in the 60s and 70s and probably going to be later in the 80s and we're hopefully always growing and becoming more inclusive and understanding of each other and respectful than what we were decades before but we have this history in our show which uh, reflects the cultural attitudes of the people working at the BBC at the time that the show was made and it's yep. it's throughout throughout Doctor Who which actually is sort of weird, which is why, I mean, I don't know whether there's actually any been any kind of question, direct question, which is why I think, you know, Mark Gatiss's um, uh, Victory of the Daleks is kind of weird, um, because I wouldn't have put Gatiss as someone, you know, who automatically is a kind of a Churchill right. worshipper. But I suppose if you want to have something set during the Second World War, maybe do you have to have Churchill? I don't know whether you do, actually. I mean, the Curse of Fenric doesn't have Churchill in it. Yeah, it's the celebrity historical aspect, and he wanted to do a tribute to Power of the Daleks, and I think uh, Victory of the Daleks is kind of a hot mess, aside kind of from the Iron Inside Daleks, and it's too much lifted from power, and I personally don't find Ian McNeese particularly uh, convincing as Churchill, and I'm not sure Churchill... I, I, I guess for me, World War II is a little too current of history, so I have a little... Especially if you're going to deal with... Uh, the big names that everyone recognizes from from history so churchill then moffat later on does hitler, hitler. Yeah. i i don't don't like that i'm glad he didn't do stalin all <laughs> chummy with stalin why don't you go for all the big three but moffat also did it with nixon and you can tell that this was a british program because if, if an american would not be trying to rehabilitate well most americans would not be trying to rehabilitate nixon and uh, yeah, though, I mean, that, I mean, guess know, make him a comedic character. I mean, I guess he was kind of stuck because you know, if he set something during the, you know, Apollo eleven, uh, sorry, Apollo thirteen. Um, no, it's Apollo eleven. Uh, it is eleven. Sorry, Apollo Apollo eleven. Yeah. It's thirteen is the one that went wrong, isn't it? Um, yep. uh, I mean, Nixon was the president then, so you kind of yeah. have to have that president. Um, yeah, I think it was a mistake doing it in Apollo eleven. I yeah, absolutely, I agree. Really, really hate the belittling of the space program all for the benefit of the silence i just yeah uh, yeah i i don't anyways we're <laughs> we're getting way off, so, way off top. yeah i mean and again, sorry i'll just finish off the thought i mean the thing you know you know like a lot of moffat stories unfortunately something i'll let let's kill hitler is basically just a catchphrase it's like okay mm-hmm. let's kill hitler okay well then what happens doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. Yeah, that that particular episode was disappointing in the, you know, Moffat is supposed to be this great storyteller, and often he hits upon a really winning uh, story to tell. But then with Mel, if he wanted to make this a winning story, he would have introduced Mel back in the 11th hour and dotted her throughout the previous season. But then just to 
I I get the feeling Mel is going to be, or J- Joe Martin, uh, the roof doctor, is going to be treated in the same way that Mel was as a disposable black character. Right. Where that's just made to make uh, the current doctor interesting or give some kind of backstory to you know either river or the doctor and really in many ways it would be a lot more interesting i think to see the joe doctor dealing with the uh division more than jody whitaker at least at that point at least that has storytelling potential that hasn't been done before that would have been you you could just imagine that if uh instead of regenerating it was just all flashback right uh with capaldi going back and sort of like oh my god i remember all this i you know and then we deal with joe martin and the division uh, i think that would have been a, a better way and right now i just get the feeling that uh dr ruth is a kind of a throwaway doctor yeah which is a shame um as um, you know my my campaign is that you know she needs to be the next doctor um and if that doesn't happen mm-hmm. i'm going to be mightily disappointed i doubt she will be because well yep so do yeah, i i, I yeah. don't know i'm not sure who i'm i actually i'm not even sure that they will continue on i just it, oh, really? it's it's Ooh. well bbc is being dis- dismantled and true uh they might try to open it up to a different production company or they might uh, put it on the shelf for a while and give it a rest all of the Colin Baker years. I'm not sure what's yeah. going, going on with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, I, mean, I think Challenge probably right now is actually making the show mm. um, currently. Make it in New Zealand. Yeah. They're revi- or revamping movie production in New Zealand because they squashed COVID. Yeah, and there you go. Just make it all in New Zealand. Which uh, it'd be very uh, Hobbit-like. It certainly would be. <laughs> very Lord of the Rings. Certainly. So what do you want to do about this one? We're, 30, ah! <laughs> we're 35 <laughs> minutes in here and uh, oh, goodness. Um, we haven't hit season 13 at all. Uh, we're not, can... not going to be able to do season 13 at this rate, are we? No, we c- I can try to pack this one it, or we can make this a lost episode. Uh, I can just uh, I can salvage the quiz bit. Yeah, I mean, for um, yeah, I'd actually forgotten. Yeah, we are we are actually rec- we're recording a pod. Well, yeah, we were supposed to be we're recording a podcast. Um, I don't know. Um, um, should we talk about season twelve and Tom then? Take yeah, twenty minutes let, and yeah, let's that do that to the quiz. Yeah, okay, let's do that. All right, okay. All right. Se- season uh, twelve and Tom, go. Uh, 